This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Stackify Prefix, an insanely cool and transparent and free profiler for developers. It runs in the background and catches bugs, including exceptions that get caught and thrown away before anyone knows you wrote them. Get detailed traces of every request. There's no messy configuration or code requirements, and best of all, it's fast and transparent. Hey, did I mention it's free? And not free like a puppy, free like beer. Download it now at prefix.netrocks.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1418, with guest Mark Seaman. Recorded Sunday, January 22nd, 2017. Hi, this is Carl Franklin. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Yep, this is the live show that Richard and I recorded with Mark Seaman in Copenhagen on the 22nd of January. But as it turns out, we lost the first part of the show. In other words, yours truly forgot to hit the record button. <laughs> so we missed the introduction where all the Danes went crazy in Welcome to .NET Rocks, and we missed my Better Know Framework. So let me just tell you what it is. <laughs> It's show 1418. So if you go to 1418.pwop.me, you'll go to this really cool blog post by a guy whose name I can barely pronounce. I'm going to say it's Gregors Zilikowski, but that's a, clearly an Americanized version of it. Anyway, this blog post is called Exploring Functional JavaScript. And he says, I started exploring functional programming concepts over a year ago. I've already shared my initial learning materials in a previous post, and it was only the beginning of my journey. And today I'd like to give you a much more detailed update on the topic. I picked the most interesting resources I discovered in the recent months, and they helped me understand how functional programming can improve the developer's experience when you work with JavaScript. And he has links to several YouTube videos and books including Classroom Coding with Professor Fisby, a talk about Fluent with Brian Lonsdorf, some stuff about React and Redux, a talk by Andrew Clark about building React components as a composition of higher-order functions using examples from Recompose. In general, it's just a really good resource for those who want to dive into functional programming ideas using JavaScript. I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Now here's Richard reading a comment. And this comment comes from Dave Glassborough, who says, As a long-term C-sharp developer, I started learning F-sharp a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. I started out using F-sharp for building build tools, CI, testing scripts, and so on, but I've become more confident with it now to use F-sharp in our main code base. As Mark talks about on the show, I'm finding F-sharp subtypes and discriminated unions really make modeling the domain so much easier than in C-sharp. So I've started moving select parts of a large system over to using F-sharp where it makes logic that much clearer, and we've been very happy with it in production. Mm -hmm. I've also rewritten our data access in F-sharp, but expose it in an OO way for our C-sharp developers, which seems to be working well. And I could strongly suggest that you should take a look at F-sharp because it's really made me enjoy development again. And the learning process has got me into the flow. And I think he capitalized that for a reason. <laughs> yeah. That much more. Thanks for the great show. 
Yeah. I, I have nothing to add. No, that was a, <laughs> Dave, that's, that's an comment. awesome comment. I think Mark appreciated it as well. Uh, thank you so much for sending that to us. And a .NET Rocks bug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks bug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. Plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. You guys didn't say I thought I said that every time, did you? No, you thought we just played it back and forth. I say it every time. Every, every single time. time. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin, and he's at Rich Campbell. And send us a tweet. We fill balloons with them. <laughs> what? I don't know. You can't do that. Oh, not really. Uh, I guess it depends on the balloon, doesn't it? Mm. Mm. And the tweet. Yeah. They're functional balloons. All right. So, uh, I'm sorry. You're just digging a hole here. Yep. Down you go. All right. Let's introduce, for real, Mark Seaman. He helps programmers make code easier to maintain. His professional interests include functional programming, object-oriented development, software architecture, as well as software development in general. Apart from writing a book about dependency injection, he's also created several Pluralsight courses and written numerous articles and blog posts about programming. Originally poised to become a rock star, failing that, graphic novelist in the European tradition, he one day found himself with insufficient talent for either, a master's degree in economics and a desire for working with computers. He's been doing the latter intermittently since 1995. And when not working with software or spending time with his family, Mark enjoys reading, listening to, and playing music, as well as preparing or consuming gourmet food and wine. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Great yeah. to have you back, sir. Mark Seaman. Good to be back. I should rewrite that bio. That always trips you up, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, but I, was, I was expecting an or, uh, a four when I saw or, and it's, you know, the accurate grammar just doesn't, uh, trips me up. No, so. yeah. Difference between what looks good on the page and what actually sounds I know. good spoken, too. It's always an interesting challenge. Yeah. Uh, we've done such cool shows with you over the years, my friend. It's, uh, it's fun to explore edges of, uh, of our industry with you. And I think we're definitely doing that today. This is coming from a conversation we've had a couple of times at events. Right. And, and it's uh, around this thing called Conway's Law. And I, I guess I could have called Conway, but I'd rather talk to you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could have. Hey, he's still alive. He's still around, yeah. yeah. And yeah, he, he's written some good stuff along the way. So we should probably start by telling people what what it what is. What the heck is Conway's okay. law? Yeah, Conway's law. So so you have heard about um, this thing where with uh, con called Conway's game of life, right? Yeah. The, um, the cellular the cellular automaton, mm -hmm. right? That which some people call it a zero player turn based game. Right. Yeah. So it's not that Conway. It's not that Conway. <laughs> no, it's not. Because the math on that is beautiful, right? If yeah. two cells are beside each other, right. they make a third, but if there's too yep. many, then it dies. But, but that's John Conway. John Conway. Yeah, so, who, who was a mathematician. And I'm not actually sure whether he's alive or not. Mm. Um, but I, you know, I actually had to look this up when I started you know, thinking about you know, both of those things. Um, because I thought, well, is it the same Conway? But it's not. There's more than one Conway. There's, there's more than one. So, so the Conway that we're going to talk about today is M Melvin Conway. And he is still around uh, today. Mm -hmm. uh, but we have to go back to 1968. So that's actually before I was born, at least. Yeah. Um, he, um, he had uh, made some observations about you know, how uh, software was created back then. And uh, he submitted a paper that was actually originally um, rejected uh, by one journal. And then he got it published in another one. And no one really took him seriously um, originally. Uh, but it's called, um, How Do Committees Invent? Um, and Committers. 
no committees. Committees like invented by committee kind okay. of thing. Yeah, so, so it basically talked about, you know, how do organizations actually uh, produce and, and in, invent, you know, all sorts of systems, really, but, you know, specifically also computer systems. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we can get back to exactly what, what the paper says. It's actually quite an easy... Uh, you, can, you can read it still today, and it's, it doesn't require any sort of math or anything. It's, it's pretty um, straightforward to go to, actually. Okay. Um, and no one really took him serious for the first, like seven years or something like that. But then, um, you know, Fred Brooks started you know, talking about him in mythical the, in the mythical, or Actually, one of the other essays, as far as I remember, that goes into that book. Sure. Um, and he just, you know, throw away this reference to Conway's law. So he's, I think he's actually the one who came up with the, with the coin term. the term. Because Conway's you law. Can, yeah. you, you can't coin a law yourself. After yourself. Yeah. No, that's right. Somebody has to lay it on you. Yeah, so, so basically, in a, in a nutshell, Conway's law says that it, you know, an organization is almost doomed, maybe that's a strong word, but it's, it's sort of... Predetermined. It, it's determined. It'll, it'll produce software systems that are copies of the way that the organization itself is structured. So the architecture of the organization becomes manifest in the architecture of the software. The, the organization of the... Uh, you know, the structure of the organization that produces the software will manifest itself in, in the software itself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the original example he comes up with is something like, you know, if you're writing a compiler, for example, and you have three teams, you know, writing a, a compiler, you will have a three-pass compiler because, <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it turns out. Right. That's how it's going to work. Yeah. So, so he comes up with some examples uh, and sort of walks you through this whole, you know, logical thought process of, you know, why is that actually the case? And then not, no one really took him serious uh, until later. And, and, you know, Fred Brooks had this, you know, throwaway remark about that. And then I think, again, you know, it was forgotten for many years. And then, you know, here in the, I, you know, it kept popping up in my, you know, in, in you know, in my periphery vision many years ago, where it just, you know, originally... Um, you know, encountered the, the the term, and I just started to look for it because I like to look for patterns. And the more I look for con you know manifestations of Conway's law, the more that I see it all over the sure. place. Hmm. Um, and and actually, to the um, to the degree now where it's it would probably be a good idea to start looking for examples of you know things that are not manifestations of, of Conway's law because yeah. maybe I'm actually suffering from you know you know uh, confirmation bias confirmation bias yeah. thank you at the moment yeah I'm a little bit afraid of that but it's still fun to talk uh, f to talk about but if you think about it it does make sense in terms of the stories people tell the art they create the myths the myths that the uh, culture will create they tend to be representative of the energies of their culture and to an individual the you know what's going on with them uh, right. You know, it ref people's product reflects the people, doesn't it? Sure. So there's a cultural aspect in, in this, but there's also a much more it's, it's a much much more strong correlation in the sense that if you need a you know a larger team to and you need to coordinate work with, between teams, mm. you need to figure out ways where you can say, well, here's a team you know, over there, and they'll need to do one thing, and then there's a team over there, because you can't just put, you know, 100 people into the same room and sort of just let chaos, uh, you know, reign. Mm -hmm. You need to have some sort of control where you say, well, those five people over there, we'll put them in a group, and we can put them in their own office or whatever, and then there's, you know, seven people over there, and we can put those in a group and, and you know, put them in another office. But now you have this problem that these people, well, they may be talking to each other all the time, um, but now you need to communicate what they decide with what the other people decide in the other room. So there, there's sort of a communication you know, thing going on there where that communication is more formalized and, um, 
and more constrained than the communication that just happens you know, inside of those yeah. things. So that's one of the things that caused Fred Brooks to talk about the mythical man moth originally, right. because he said, well, you know, if you, have, you, know, if you can you know, write a, you know, a particular feature, you know, one man can write a feature in, in, in a month. You know, how, uh, you know, how fast can two men or women write the same feature? Well, that, Six it's, weeks. No, it's going to take, yeah, maybe a two months, maybe. Yeah. It's actually going to take more time because there's now the communication overhead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and basically, in order, you know, you can't if you if you think about the combinatorial explosion of you know, of um, you know, communicating, you can't just have if you have twenty people, you can't allow all the connections to happen because that's just going to be a lot of overhead. Yeah, you, you, it's an it's an n over n minus yeah, one problem. Exactly. So what you do instead is you create groups and then you create formalized communication channels between between those groups in order to keep that overhead down. And that's basically the only way you can actually scale teams. Right. Yeah. So does that mean my my middle tier might communicate to my user interface via inter-office memos? Um, no, but but you will probably have inter-office memos that talk about how these things communicate with each other. <laughs> so we got to implement a fax layer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but you know what happens in reality, for example, in a statically typed uh, language like C Sharp, or that most uh, of the listeners are probably used to, you'd probably define an interface on abstract base class sure. and say, well, this is the one. This is how we interface between the, those two layers. Yeah, that's right. the negotiation, right? Because it the is. Rules. It is. Yeah. And you always get that scrambling when you, then you, when you need to change that interface. Right. I know I promised that I was going to talk to you like this, but I really need to talk to you like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. That's yeah. what it comes down to. Right. And it's fine when there's two teams. Yeah, so, so when there's, there's two teams, it, it's still manageable, if you will, but then you, know, you have the problem as, as sizes grow. Yeah, so you need to figure out various different ways to do that. So, but it doesn't have to be just in, internally in an application architecture. You know, it, it can be organizational instead. And one mm. of the things we should probably talk about you know, as we move into this discussion is, for example, looking at you know, Microsoft and their approach to open source software before and how that is playing out at the moment, because I think mm. it is actually a manifestation I think of Conway's law, even mm -hmm. though I may just have you know confirmation bias. I don't know. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree with you because yep. there's nope. there's pluses and minuses on that as well, right? Right. right. I, just I, because uh, just because it's an observation doesn't mean it's necessarily appropriate or inappropriate or good or bad or right. anything. I mean, it's it just is. Right. But but basically, what I, what I think is what looks like is happening is that if you if we just you know pull back a little bit and look at you know what makes some open source software so successful if you're looking at some of the original successful open source projects well originally it probably started in in you know in academia so you had some professor sitting in berkeley and and doing stuff but then you had a new you know um, generation of open source that sort of appeared in the 90s, where you know Linux is one example, you know Git is one example, and then later on, you know, you can find other examples like this, where you know we talked about, I talked about Ruby on Rails uh, just before, and that's also you know an open source project. Um, and many and of the protocols that we use in the internet, you know, that we base our applications on, are, are you would call them open source because there's no software, but they're protocols that are just free and open to understand and implement. Right, right. But one of the things that I, I, mean, I think is interesting when you look at, for example, why is Linux one of the most successful open source projects in the world? Well, one of the reasons I think is because it's based on the Linux 
uh, actually originally the Unix philosophy, where you know the Unix philosophy is this thing where you say do one thing and do it very well. Right. So you have those small programs like uh, you know grip or set or whatever right. it is, and then you take you know you take them and, and they do a very specific thing, and then you pipe, pipe the output together. of that one, yeah. and then you can compose larger systems of those small things. So you have a system that is architecturally very decoupled, mm -hmm. and that means even if you have distributed teams that are sitting all over the world, you don't have to understand the entire architecture of Unix or of Linux for that matter mm. in order to understand you know, how does grep work, for example. Mm. So, so if you're interested in, in you know, adding a new feature to grep, even if you're sitting in, you know, in Australia and the original you know, writer is in Finland or in America or whatever, um, you can still just you know, take a look at that small sub-module and it's still something that is you know, not you know, so big. It's not so big that you can't really, um, you know, deal with it just, you know, by by yourself. And you can create a patch, and you can send that to to you know Linus, who will then you know scream at you. Yes. Um, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's sort of like it it it, it does really um, you know further this whole uh, you know idea about you know having a decoupled architecture means that the structure of the way that you can contribute or the, the way that the organization that actually writes the software can be decoupled as well. So I think Microsoft saw that and they saw, you know, that looks like it's a very efficient way to develop software. So we want to do that as well. Has it changed the internal structure of Microsoft? Though, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, that has happened yet. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think, you know, if they want to be successful with that, they'll need to do that. Yeah, um, I, I would say it's starting to happen, actually. I think so, yeah. I, and I'm, I mean, I would cite a couple of examples when you come to the mind, specifically the ASP.NET team, who really were one of the first on board anyway. And key members of those teams, uh, of that team, like David Fowler and... Damien Edwards, naming names, I mean, they came from SignalR. Yeah. SignalR was originally an open source project, which Microsoft then pulled into the product right. and maintained open source. And now they're part of the bigger ASP.NET team. So they sort of had the culture in the first place. Right. But in some ways, I think the, the, the kind of mess that happened between the betas of ASP.NET Core and the two RCs were a byproduct of them learning how to sort of code in the open and playing with their organizational architecture and how they took feedback mm. on GitHub. Because they hadn't yeah. done it before. No, exactly. And, they, and yeah. they made mistakes. Oh, yeah. That, that sort of manifests itself as, boy, these betas feel a lot like alphas. <laughs> yeah. And these RCs were very beta-ish. Uh, but it was, you know, sort of publicly done. Right. Right, so that's probably one of the problems, and I'm, I'm not. A, I don't. I don't think that was a mistake. I, I think it was actually a good thing, and, and I'm sure that they learned a lot from it. You yeah. Know, not. You know, they're not stupid people at all. So, so they will. But I think. Um, you know, one of the things that, that, that probably happened was that you still have an organization where even if you have a couple of developers who have already done SignalR and they yeah. know how open source works, you still have a huge organization that surrounds those people who are not really used to that way of thinking yes. yet. So they're still going you know, with the old-fashioned way of saying, well, we have... you know. Um, build, Microsoft build coming up at this particular date. So this thing has to be finished on that particular right. date because trade show, you know? Mm. Yeah, because um, it's an event where the event's going to happen, the right. dates are set, and you're yeah. going to be showing some right. stuff. Right, right. And, and, and then, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you take all of that and say, well, the date is still fixed, but now we're having all the discussion in the open. Right. And then it really doesn't look particularly nice anymore. Well, yeah. I, I also think the team itself were having conversation in the open, but then they right. had to talk to 
other teams yes. that well, weren't necessarily open source. Like yes. literally, this is where the organizational problem came into play. Right. Not every part of that organization works the same way, and so you saw decisions made in the open that then got rescinded in private. Right, and, and right. this is the way Microsoft has worked for a long time. They're almost like a you know a thousand different companies. You know, each yep. each focused on a product or something, and and you know at the same time they try to enforce this hierarchy. Right. You know, because this person reports to that person reports yes. to this person. Now you see sort of teams having more autonomy and having more inter-team communication. Well, Perhaps in, in the small, I think, but have you seen this comic that went around a couple of years ago about my man Cornet, where it's sort of like, it's, it's, you know, the organization structures of various different tech companies. Yeah. And you start by looking at Google, for example, and it looks like a pretty normal organizational tree, you know, just a hierarchy, until you realize that it's, it's actually a binary tree. Right. And <laughs> I'm not going to do all of them, but, you know, you know, the Oracle one is really, you know, beautiful because it, it just looks like a normal organizational, you know, hierarchy, you know, tree. And you think, think well, the root is probably Larry. Ellison, but then you have two groups, two large boxes around, you know, there's a small subtree and a large subtree, and, you know, around the small subtree, it says, you know, development. And then around the large subtree, which is most of the organization, it says legal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, so, the, and the Apple one was a big red dot in the yep. center and everything radiating right. out from it. Yeah. The and, job-centric organization. Exactly. And the Microsoft yeah. one, I think, is, is pretty appropriate here. It because was. Because there's basically... Sitting around a table with guns aimed at each other. There's, yeah. They're basically blobs, and every blob has a you know, hand sticking out with a, holding a pistol that points at the other blobs. And that's basically, you know, those autonomous companies within the company. Right. And the only thing that actually binds them together is that they all report to the same, you know, boss. Yeah. And I think Satya is changing the culture. I, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. It, and I think so. But uh, it's a big company. Absolutely. Yeah, 120,000 people don't change that. No, quickly. no, absolutely. Yeah. But, but I think we saw lots of examples of this, uh, you know, re, you know in, in many years ago. Um, you, know, you know, I've been a .NET developer for more than 15 years. Mm -hmm. And I've always uh, liked it. You know, I, I really liked it. I'm, I'm totally buying into this whole, you know, way of, of thinking about it. And then every time, you know, Microsoft released a new version of Windows or if they released a new version of Office, it was always like, like well, here's an API and it's a Windows API. Uh, what about .NET? Well, yeah, sorry. We'll get there. Uh, well, maybe. maybe yeah. and, and then later on, it was like, oh, and you could do universal pro you know, universal apps and whatever, and you could do it in JavaScript. And I said, like, yeah, okay, what about... .NET. What, what about .NET? Yeah, but you could do it in JavaScript. You know? Right. I've already bought into this whole platform. Can, yeah. can I do it in, JavaScript, uh, in, in .NET? Yeah, uh, maybe later. Well, it's sort of an <laughs> a, a realization that .NET didn't dominate all of Microsoft. Yeah, it was just DevDiv, and they, all yeah. the others, it, you, know, you really got the impression that they actually didn't like what was happening in debt dip and what well, to and go I, in a well, different the direction. operating system certainly didn't. Yeah. Windows well, team I did. would argue that the rest of the company are C++ programmers. Yeah, probably. And, yeah. and many management makes them angry. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like there's, <laughs> there's a basic line there where C++, when you tell C++ what you're doing with memory and managed memory, so yeah. he says, you're doing what? Yeah. No pointers? <laughs> yeah, we're not, we're not hosting that in our software. Yeah, right. right. We wouldn't do, yeah, I, right. I'll tell you when you're going to collect garbage. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> So, so, so one of the things that I think is interesting is, is exactly to look at, you know, organizations, you know, hierarchies, you know, organizational structures. Sure. So this is one of the things that I know, you sometimes do when I meet a new client and they sit me down, you know, the first day on the new place and then, you know, they're trying to tell me what it is that they want from me and what I, you know, I'll try to figure out what I can do for, mm -hmm. for them. And I, you know, if they don't do this by themselves, I ask them, you know, what does your organization structure look like? You know, you don't have to give me all the details, just, you know, where are you, you know, IT development or whatever, where are you in this organization? And they start drawing, it's always a tree. 
and they start drawing, and it says, well, here's development, and here's IT, and you know, development you know, reports to Alice, and mm. IT reports to Bob, and they all report to Luis or whatever. And then you have the business over here, and they report to Joe, and they all, you know, report to, to the CEO or whatever. Right. And then, uh, you know, I ask them, so, so do you have, you know, enterprise architects here? And say, yes, we do. So, so where are the enterprise architects? Well, they're actually over on the business side because the reason why we have enterprise architects is because the business really cares that all the strategy for the IT stuff is aligned and makes sense from the business perspective, which I, I think you know, makes perfect sense. Sure, yeah. And then I say to them, you don't really like your enterprise architects much, do you? And they go... How, how how could you tell? <laughs> I said, but you just you just told me. Yeah. Uh, so just to get this straight, I have I have absolutely nothing against the concept of an enterprise architect. Yeah. I think if you have a big IT system, you know, organization, you need to have someone who can have a, you know an overview of what's actually happening here and how mm -hmm. does that align to the business. Um, but I think it's the problem is often that they are placed in a in a part of the organization where they're. Um, their goals conflict with the goals of you know development and the goals of, of IT sure. operations. Yeah, and um, I would see where you see great enterprise architects is when they can resolve those conflicts. Yeah, like yeah somebody's got to take that job on. That you need somebody needs to understand business. Absolutely, I prefer that more people understand business. Yep. But if you haven't also taken the time to see how operations work and how development works, and when you see these misalignments, insist that they get corrected and so have people the power to do the same so. way. Yeah, you're never going to be successful. Right. Right. So, uh, and, and you see it even in small, I think one of the reasons why we're looking at this whole movement of, of, you know, around DevOps at the moment is because you also had, had, had that sort of conflict before, you know, mm -hmm. because basically, you know, a, a development organization's primary purpose is to produce as much change as possible, as fast as possible, <laughs> right? <laughs> and you have an IT operation and their main goal is to keep things as steady as possible right. uh, with as little change as possible. Yeah. Mm. So if you have this, you know, old fashioned way of, you know, developing software, where you develop the software and you throw it over the wall and then hope that the IT will sort of pick, pick that up and, and you know, do something with it. You probably often get it back saying, nope, not good enough. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, it's not worth the risk. Right. So I think you know, it, it makes a lot of sense to say, well, okay, let's create a new type of organization where we put some people who know how to operate things together with some people who know how to develop things and we make the team, you know, all the team responsible for the development and the operations of a particular piece of software. That makes a lot of sense to so me. So are you Absolutely. talking about applying a pattern that works really well in software to business? Is that really what we're talking about here? Well, so there's this thing called the reverse Conway manure, or maybe it's called the inverse Conway manure, I can't remember. Um, but the, basically the, the idea is to say, well, we have a problem with how we are you know, developing software at the moment. The architecture isn't what we'd like it to be. Mm. Let's change our organization to reflect where we want to go, because if we do that, um, we might actually be able to get the, you know, the systems to, you know, there's probably going to be some lag, right. uh, but, yeah. but then we can start, you know, maybe, maybe creating the systems in the way that we wanted to. There was an article published um, two weeks ago, maybe last week, um, by Mary Poppendieck, I think, uh, where they talked about there's a Dutch bank called ING mm -hmm. that's actually recently begun to do this where they're changing the, the entire organization of the bank because they realized that they were actually not a bank anymore. So they say, well, we've, you know, we've been going on for hundreds of years or maybe a hundred years saying we're a bank. 
and we're and you know later on they they became a bank that did software but they, and you know at a certain point they realized that we're actually a software services company that just happens to be in the banking niche if right, you will right. and once they realized that they started to reorganize their entire you know organization around the concept of having teams that had some domain experts from the business together with some development people that that had to figure out you know how do we solve a particular business problem using technology hmm. and as they said you know that was not an easy thing and i think it's still an ongoing process so it's really interesting to see where that's going to end up. Absolutely. Yeah, but I think that's basically probably what a lot of companies need to to do because if they don't, you know, you just have, you know, this is the whole, you know, coveted disruption thing that is happening over in Silicon Valley at the yeah. at the moment. If companies if or if industries don't do this by themselves, you know, there will come some you know, someone in from the outside and then do it for them. Right. And, and without just, them. Yeah. Without them. Yes, exactly. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time for an observation. Oh, what's that? So one might surmise that if they look at all of the jokes that I've done in .NET Rocks throughout mm -hmm. the years, oh, some thousand jokes now, I don't know what it has been, that you can actually tell the architectural structure of my brain, which maps very nicely to a method of programming. <laughs> what method is that? Dysfunctional programming. <laughs> <laughs> That is the first time I've got a round of applause for destroying myself on stage. No, there you but, go. But, but, you know, but you know why? I, I can tell you why. why. Because the structure, now you were not in a booth without feedback. You were actually you know, doing this <laughs> for the yeah, audience. That's right. And they that's like why it was me. funny. They actually <laughs> like me. <laughs> All right. It's actually time to give away a de-experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Edmund Tang. Congratulations, Edmund. No golf claps. Real claps. Can you guys just give me one more? Dotnet rocks! <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I just I just feel great now. I feel awesome. You are in a good mood. Well, it, we just gave away a D-Experience subscription to, uh, to uh, Edmund Tang just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. And in every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you have to sign up to win. And of course, uh, Mark, it's your turn. I think we asked you this a couple times already. Don't know if it's changed, but if you had $5,000 US to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Well, so I, I'll probably be, uh, I'll stretch the definition a little bit and say, well, I'll, I'll do something that you, you, you know, you, the, some technology is probably required in order to attain this or achieve this. But as you may know, I'm, I do tend to be a little bit of a foodie and I like actually nice restaurants. Yes. Um, so there is, um, you know, every year there's a list of, of, you know, the best restaurants in the world called the, you know, the 
world top 50 or something like that, yeah. which, as the name implies, has you know, a list of the 100 best restaurants in the world <laughs> uh, because it's the top 50, right? Yeah. Um, so so this, is actually a, um, this is actually a list that is compiled by lots of people in the business themselves uh, who are basically just voting for the ones that they think are the best restaurants, and then you know the one that gets the most vote actually actually wins. So you want to visit all fifty? No, no, no. That, yeah, for fifty, yes. for, for five, for five thousand dollars. Yeah, no, no, that's gonna. Uh, no, I, I, I just want to do the the first one basically. So okay. at the moment, it's uh, it's in Italy. It's in Modena in Italy. It's called um, Osteria Francescana. Um, so I'd like to go. There. Very nice. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> So and if, and if I still have more money, I could go to El Cela de Can Roca in Spain. But um, yeah, and basically mm. just go for there. But I think I have, you know, I'd probably have money for one or two of those. Especially, especially if I bring, you know, some, you know, friends or whatever. There you go. Yeah. yeah. You don't want to eat alone in a place like that. I no. went into the lottery for El Bulli for oh. five years in a row. Not even came close. No. That, this was the top restaurant for years and yep. years. Aiden Ferrar's restaurant in right. outside of Barcelona, and I'd finally discovered that the way you actually got a table there is you stayed, there was like two hotels right beside the restaurant, and if you stayed in a very nice room there and asked the concierge, you uh -huh. yourself a table, and so I was in the process of booking it when he closed the restaurant. <laughs> oh. do, you, do you know why he closed the restaurant? He, he wanted to retool. He thought that everybody was doing the same thing. Well, he, he was, was not number one anymore. Yeah. He, he and, was, and basically, if you're there, if you have three stars in Michelin and, yeah. and, and, and you're the, the number one, and then you lose the number one spot. You have to close down. What else can you do? Yeah. What yeah do you I, do? I have a similar story. I can get a table at the shack anytime I want. Because <laughs> <laughs> your wife works there. Especially on Sundays when they have liver and onions. Awesome. <laughs> But it requires a lot of, of, of technology, you know, particularly El Bulli, as you well, mentioned there. Driving molecular gastronomy. Yeah, that was, yeah. So, have you ever tried that, by the way? Yes. We, we, you know, my wife and I bought a little toolkit where we could actually make those spheres of gelatin. And yeah, and the, the, the yeah. intense peas, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Very, Pretty funny. Way too much work for making oh, a yeah. cheese sandwich. I think man. we did it once. Yeah. And we had a blast an entire day of making all sorts of different flavors. And have, have you ever made cheese shapes? sauce with sodium citrate? No. Nope. I think it's sodium citrate. I'll have to check. But it's basically this powder, and this is very cool. You put a little eighth of a teaspoon. I don't know how many grams that is. I'm sorry, I'm American. <laughs> eighth of a teaspoon into a little pot, cover it with water, bring it to a simmer, and then you put eight ounces of cheddar cheese in there, and it turns it into a cheese sauce, like, mm -hmm. you know, cheese whiz consists like macaroni and cheese kind of thing yeah so it's a that's little bit the like american version of molecular gastronomy <laughs> <laughs> i think i think the, the word you're looking for is fondue actually yeah, yeah. it's a sort of a fondue right yeah yeah I, I want to dive back into this because I think you were just getting to an interesting place. You know, this oh, is, finally. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> it, just a, it's a very powerful thought that every company is a software company now. Oh, yeah. You know, this is Mark Andreessen's software is eating the yep. world. It's like, name me an industry where software isn't vitally important to it. And in most business hierarchies, you know, software's over there. Right. It's sometimes it's under the CFO. Sometimes it's maybe they have a tech advisor or not. Maybe, you know, purely IT. Uh, when I've been consulting with an organization and they've been complaining about, you know, management of the list and so forth and so on, I said, can management tell the difference between you guys and the janitorial service that cleans the right. building? Because the janitorial service is very important in the sense that the floors are kept clean, the lights walls are changed, bathrooms, you know, that all that it's stuff. It's very is object necessary. oriented. If, isn't it? if the things aren't done, people notice. But they don't look for value from that. They look at cost controls from that. And as soon as you think, treat software and operations as a cost control mm -hmm. center, uh, you're in 
it used to be that was fine. That you know that's Ballywick of the CFO controlling costs all as well. But in this market, in today's world, if software doesn't represent your source of innovation, you're about to be removed from the marketplace. Right. It's only a matter of time. Yeah. Hmm. And so by that token, every organization is a software organization. We should be central to providing value to the company. Yeah. But often the organization makes that really difficult because yes. the communication channel that you actually have in order to be able to talk to someone who can actually tell you what it is that they need you to do mm -hmm. is such a convoluted... Maybe you're not even in the same office building or sure. whatever. Mm. Uh, so that's actually... Another sign that you're clearly being treated as a cost center, right? You have lesser offices. You're in the basement. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, all those uh, kinds of things. Yeah, well, yeah and I, that'd but be I'm, great. <laughs> you can't have my red stapler. <laughs> I told you that already. <laughs> you know... Swingline doesn't actually make a red stick. I know. Yeah. Because of The Office. You guys know the movie we were talking office about? Space, the, the office Space. You know this space? movie? Yeah. All right. Sorry. After They made that stapler. They painted that stapler. And it became so popular that Swingline got asked for it so often, they started making one because of a movie. And that's awesome. Okay. Getting back to the point. I don't think they've even seen it. Yeah. You no. should. If you haven't seen Office Space, you should. It's definitely funny. Jennifer, maybe they don't it. have that kind of crazy bureaucracy in, in no, uh, no. Denmark. But. The corollary is also true. How often do you talk to developers who don't know how the company makes money? Oh, absolutely. All the right. time, yeah. Much less operations. Right? You can get very far removed from reality. And part of it, I think, is self-inflicted. Because as long as we're focused on business goals, I have a hard time coming up with excuses to try new tools and, and to experiment. You know, Because we actually love our technology. We want oh, yeah. to play with it. We want to try and, and dive into new things. You just have to actually show business value to do that. Do you know of any companies who have employed, let's say, the actor model as a model of how their teams do business with each other? <laughs> and, you know, everybody's an actor, every team is an actor, and they all send emails to each that other. That is actually the original way an office worked, because yeah. basically you had office workers, and what you would do is you would get some sort of piece of paper, you know, in your inbox. Yeah. The memo. A memo or whatever, and or a formula, and then you know you need to fill out some data in the formula, and then you post, put it in your outbox, and then there's put it a, together in a paper clip with the rest of the documents. Pass it on. Pass it on, then and and you know it goes to the next worker, which is another actor. Yeah, right. And and you know he or she pulls that piece of paper, you know, off the inbox, and you know put a stamp on it, and put it in the outbox, mm. and so forth. So that's basically how most offices, you know, used to work. Right. Um, well, it's the individuals yeah. being actors, but what about teams? Um, so, so now we're talking microservices. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so I think so. Microservices is another really interesting um, manifestation of, or you know, maybe an attempt to you know do the inverse Conway maneuver in the sense that you know, again, you know, if you have a hundred developers. Um, like originally, you know, I think Netflix started out something like that. They probably have a lot more now, mm -hmm. um, but but you know that's. That's too many, you know, developers to actually manage. And if you try again, if you try to manage those developers in, you know, in a higher hierarchical structure, you get those those problems where you need to go through, you know, many layers of, you know, formal communication in order to be able to talk from one team to another one, and and it becomes very difficult to coordinate, uh, you know, what different teams uh, do. Mm. So that's one of the, the the reasons why, you know, I so I've seen people try to do that, organizations try to do that, where they have like, you know, sixty or a hundred developers. And, and they're trying to coordinate what all of these people do uh, because they want to develop new software. And what often happens is that once a year, they have the big release. And it's sort of like everyone just scrambles to get to that particular point because that is where everything needs to be aligned. It's the only time and, you're going to show value to the organization. Yeah, that's one problem. But the other problem with that is if you're not quite ready at that point, yeah. 
you you cannot miss the release date. No, no bonus for you. It's going to be another year. If, and maybe other people are actually depending on your service, right. Right. and they've been testing it for months, and, and now you have a problem. So this is what leads to a lot of, of you know, um, a lot of bad coding that sure. happens. And this is where a lot technical of the, the source of technical debt actually yeah. comes from, because people say, we cannot miss this deadline, because there will not be another one yep. until many months, maybe a year from now on. Mm -hmm. So people build up organizational, or they build up technical debt exactly for that particular reason. Yeah. And then we know that it's never being paid off because you can't measure it. Um, so you just keep on going because then the next deadline is looming. Now, if we had um, a release every day or every oh, week, that every hour, could perhaps yeah. then solve the problem. So that would be yeah. one way to solve the problem. But then you have the problem with, you, if you want to release several times a day, you can no longer coordinate so that it, you know, everyone does that in lockstep sure, anymore. Right. You need to figure out a way where you make teams independent of each other. So you sort of you know, try to re you know, then make teams independent of each other. You sort of arrive at that microservices architecture where you say, mm -hmm. I think Netflix has this, they call it a two-pizza team, right? Um, <laughs> where they say, well, you know. You can't feed everyone with two pizzas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you need to be able to feed the team with two pizzas. Right. And I don't know mm -hmm. what sort of pizzas they have over there, but they must be bigger than the ones that we have American here. pizza is very large. Yeah, okay, fair yeah. enough. Americans are very large. <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so maybe a team is just one person, I don't know, but that would still be a microservice, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. Well, so, and I do like this idea of for a given service, a given developer. Like, it seems like a logical sense of granularity. It's, yeah. It's very hard to have multiple people working in the same service. And, and this goes back to Fred Brooks, because mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the other essays that are in the Mythical Man Months um, is uh, talking about how you organize teams. And he actually talk, talks about something called the surgical team. Mm -hmm. And he models that after how you know, real surgical teams work, where there is one surgeon who does all the operation, and then there's a standby doctor who's typically a junior doctor who's basically just there to observe, right. and also in, you know, there in order to um, stand. You know, he's standing by if the... You know, the um, if the senior doctor needs to, or some, if something happened, or if, if needs you know, help, if, yeah. if, if he needs help, or if, if there's a crisis or whatever, right. and then there's uh, you know some other support staff around that that you know nurses and and, and things like that. Right. So he just thought you know sort of you know talks about that model and he thinks that's actually a reasonable way to do you know software development. And it's well, very pair programming if you think about it too. You could actually just well. So this is back from '75. So obviously we mm. probably need to adjust that a little bit. And one of yeah. the ways we could do that, for example was to do bad programming. Because I do like, when you are in the chest cavity, when you're head down doing the work, it's very hard to keep track of everything that's going on around right. you. Or even to recognize when you're thrashing, when you're yeah. struggling. Yeah. Having someone else of comparable skill, yep. maybe not equal, who is head up, who is observing you going through that process, you, th you stop the thrash sooner. You, you have a moment where you're like... I you can actually say, I'm going down the wrong path. And that's where the junior-senior thing becomes a problem because often it's a junior guy yeah, yeah. and you tell the senior guy, aren't you going the right. wrong way? And that's right. a tough thing to do. Yes. But it's so powerful to have a head-up person immersed in the problem just to be able to say, hey, I think we might be going the wrong right. way. Right, and you can extend that. I think you, you have talked to Woody Sewell, haven't Absolutely. you? Absolutely, the so mob he, programming So model. he has this concept of the mob, mob programming, and right, one, yeah. of, one of the things is exactly that. There is one person who's actually typing on the keyboard. The pilot. 
And then, yeah, that's the pilot. And then there are other people who are assisting and, and you know, giving advice. Right. And maybe there's one person who's sitting with his or her own laptop and yes. they're doing research yep. because yeah. they want to figure uh, out, okay, we need, yeah. we need to, to figure out how to do this. So I'll just sit here and I'll still watch what's going on, but I'll just do a little research on my own laptop yeah. to figure out, you know, yeah. how do we call this third well, party? Well, I wonder how many times halfway through building something, somebody finally realizes while searching, hey, this already exists. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. this <laughs> library here. Right. And it's not a bad thing because... No. As long if you're actually going to throw the code away so you haven't incurred that debt, then that coding exercise, those few hours where they're figuring out, this is them deeply understanding the problem yep. enough to then value that that mature open source library saves them work. Right. You know, okay. we're three hours into coding this and we suddenly realize there's 30 more hours to do this. Yeah. And then you tell me about the library versus at the beginning where you said, oh, there's this library, ah, we can write it. Yeah. Are, are we walking towards this idea of sort of replacing traditional hierarchies with more like API endpoints? I, I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense to I me. Mean, and, I mean, uh, uh, hierarchies are necessary in, in a certain form, but I guess the question is, you know, just have as much as is absolutely necessary. I, right? I'm not even sure that hierarchies as such as necessary. We need leaders, but that's something completely different. Yeah. You know, I think a leader is someone who can say, this is the direction we need to go. Mm. And, and then basically tell people, you know, we need to go in that direction. Right. But what I think, you know, I've, you know, I've been um, lucky enough to have actually quite a few good, good uh, you know, managers during my career. And they all had this, you know, common um, way of approaching things where basically that's what they do. They say, we need to go in that way. And mm. I trust you that you can figure that out. Right. But if you can't, come and ask me or if you run into problems you know come and ask me for help mm -hmm. you know because maybe i can clear out some things or you know remove obstacles for, right. from you and you know in a hierarchical sense they were my managers because they were the people who could fire me mm -hmm. and also the people who originally hired me but they were protecting you from the organization so but, that you but they were actually job. yes yeah exactly but they yeah. were actually the leaders so in in you know in day-to-day -day work i never really saw them as as my bosses, if you will, they were peers, mm. and they were just filling out the role of being the ones who knew where we wanted to go. Sure. Right. And then, you know, I was there in order to figure out how to do that. And and you know, my managers, they were all, all men, you know, uh, so I can say he. Um, you know, my manager would always say, you know, uh, you, I trust you to figure out, you know, how to do this thing. Sure. Right. So so I think you know. And you did have to report to them routinely. You weren't reporting after everything, but it was like once a week or once a month. Well, we still did catch up. You know, most most of my career, I've actually done you know incremental development. Like sure. We've done yeah. TDD and so on. And you know, in the beginning, we didn't do you know continuous deployment or anything like that. But we still like uh, follow, for example, Scrum and do you know iterations and do you know daily standups and so on. So we sort of still report back to say you know. We actually made this yesterday, or maybe I'm stuck or whatever. Right. Uh, so mm -hmm. there is some sort of reporting, you know, some sort of progress needs to be visible. Some way to measure you your output. But if you think about it, DevOps, you know, the goal is automation of a lot of this stuff. Instead of spending so much time in meetings, it would be better if you're, you know, your boss and the people who are interested in what you're doing could just go see. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know? So, but once you start doing that, then you can start, start to think about, okay, so if you just have a couple of people who are working together on a microservice, um, Maybe they need to be in a room together, maybe even not, but then they, they don't have to be co-located with any no. other team, actually, sure. uh, because the whole idea is to be independent, uh, because what you want to get rid of is this whole need for actually coordinating releases, because you're just, you know, releasing all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
But then you run into this problem is that if you're in the same office as other teams that do other microservices or whatever it is, sometimes it actually becomes a little bit too easy to just come and talk to the other team. So sure. I know th this is something that, you know, you a lot de of... Deformalize a bunch of conversations that yes, needed and, to be formalized. And, and there are lots of people who see this as a good thing um, because basically where you come from, it's probably an improvement. Yes. Um, but I've also seen organizations where this is actually... Um, this takes on a new. Um, it's actually it, it turns up to you know it ends up being a problem because sure. as uh, long as everybody that would be involved in the decisions in the room, it's one thing. But it's never everybody. Here's a good example. There's other people that are always going to be affected because you guys talked and you didn't really document it. You made a decision without yes. knowing the full scope of the problem. You didn't a great document example it. of that is Slack, right? How many times have you just m turned your head and a complete conversation has gone by on Slack that's now several pages up and that has become the way things will be done, you know, and not communicated anywhere else. Right. And if you don't search on Slack for it, then you, you, you've missed out. But at least it's a record. It's two guys it's standing by, true. by a water cooler. You really got a right. problem. Right. Yeah. yeah, so it's a little bit better, but actually I know that that was just a rhetorical question, yeah, but sure. still I can actually answer that, and, and the, my answer is zero, because I, I avoid things like that, you know, basically like the plague, mm -hmm. just to be, uh, you know, um, a cliche. Um, I don't really like all of those instant communication tools very much, because they tend to um, emphasize or, you know, further this sort of, you know, very, very ad hoc way of communication. And the problem is, again, if you go with, with Conway's law, if you have lots of ad ad hoc communication, what you end up encoding into your system is also a lot of ad hoc communication that, in the code. Yeah, I, I so, so you don't really have any architecture, you just have lots of on-the-spur decisions that just get, gets encoded into the, hmm. in, into the software. And I also appreciate the sentiment you had there about the big peers. That an architect is not a superior in any respect. No. That they, th what they are is somebody who worries about all of the pieces, counting on each piece to be able to be built by skilled right. people. And if you as an individual developer worry about all those pieces, you would never get a chance to build your own code. Right. It's its own job, and it's a necessary part of the equation, but the architect can't succeed without the developer. Exactly. And the developer is unlikely to succeed without right. the architect. Yeah, There's always going to be an architecture. The question is, did you have an intentional one? Uh, yeah. Yeah, my, my, so my ideal enterprise architect is a person who can you know, walk from team to team and basically say, oh, what are you, what are you working on this week? Right. And, and, mm -hmm. and you'll tell them and they say, oh, did you know, by the way, that you know, that team over there, they're working on that thing, um, which is sort of related to what it sounds like what you're doing at the mm -hmm. moment. Maybe you should talk. Mm -hmm. Right. And Save then, yourself some time and yeah. potential pain. And then the mm -hmm. enterprise architect can basically just you know, move on from there and say, well, now I've connected those two teams so that they will be able... They, now they know that they need to talk. Right. My job here is done. I can now move on and talk to some other teams right. as well. I think this is really an important thing that, it, that, you know, that the big organization needs. And that is, you know, in my opinion, the role of a good enterprise architect. And I've met some of those, but I also met a lot that... You know, yeah, look at it that. as a promotion mm. that now they can speak to their underlings. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, 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 mm -hmm. and exactly going. So, so I think it was it's um, Rebecca Parsons who calls this a, a, a seagull architect. Mm -hmm. You know, they come flying in through the window, they shit all over the place and make make a mess, and then they fly out. They of also the eat your again. food too. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you only had two pizzas. Yeah. the architect ate half of it, <laughs> then shit on your plants, and then left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You thought they were an astronaut, turned out they were a seagull. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. My! <laughs> but, I, but I do appreciate that somebody's got an overall view, that yeah. they are worrying about bigger problems. Absolutely. You know, it's one thing to talk with between the individual team members on, on an app, but also they're checking in with folks that are shepherding other apps. Right. 
So it is, uh, it's an interesting job and a hard job. But Very you know, hard. can that information also be automated? I mean, isn't, I would say that why aren't people aware of what other teams are doing on a regular basis? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, that doesn't yeah. seem like, that's just information. Uh, right, but there's so much information. Yeah. Oh, so so here we just have a good idea for a new, um, you know, you can get a new Silicon Valley startup on that, you know, doing mm. AI and machine learning to figure that out mm. in an organization. Just set a listener up that listens to all the check-ins on, you know, and Git and so on and figure out what's going on. Right. Well, someone should do that. They can probably get a lot of seed money out of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, really, you're just looking at documentation. You must or, relocate uh, to San Francisco, yeah. though. <laughs> right. So, so that's, I think it's a big part of an architect's role <laughs> is they are triaging all having all these conversations yeah. and then triaging where the intersection point should be. You know, if, if you want to get to a place in it with a developer where if I haven't talked to my architect all week, I'm upset. Like, I actually want to check in. Yeah, really. They make yeah. me more efficient. Right. And vice versa. If, you've got, if you're an architect and you haven't been speaking to your developers, you really don't know where things are at. Right. And that does set a basic sense of a span of control. You can only speak to so many people in a given day and in a given week much less retain all that information and be able to share it efficiently. So, you know, teams can only be so big. And when you try and make them bigger than that, you get inefficient communications. The software is going to reflect that. Right. Mm. And I would also argue this. It, knowing that those are hard, granular things, that we can only speak so fast, we can only talk to so many people and so forth, this is where tooling comes into play. Like, one of the advantages we have right now is that it does take less time and fewer lines of code to do more. Right, yes, absolutely. And where you see libraries and things come into play is when you come to recognize, here's a pattern that's repeated often and necessary to our organization, and so we will take the time to own that library, because it's expensive, mm -hmm. and it's its own job unto itself, because it amplifies the capabilities of a significant group of developers. Yeah. Now, we, if we could just apply this awesomeness to the educational system. <laughs> <laughs> where I come from, not yours. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, What's next for you, Mark? Where, what's on in your inbox? Uh, you know, I give the same answer every time because you always catch me at the end of a conference season. Yes. And I'm always like winding down from a, you know, a gig that I had. Where were you five months ago? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I'm really like, uh, yeah, there's a couple of books that I want to write and, and so on. But, you know, who knows? It always happens. So that whenever I give you this answer, then the next month, you know, something new comes along and then I'll get, you know, involved in something like that. And, you know, that's actually something that pays money. So I never really got, get around to writing yeah. the books. But so... But if, if you really want to be, you know, if you really want to see new stuff from me, then just don't hire me, I suppose. <laughs> Can I just say that? If you no. really want to see Mark write a book, he needs to be unemployed for an extended period yeah. of time. <laughs> no, that, that didn't come out That's right. That's not a good time uh, at all, no. Something like that. Maybe yeah. you're going on holiday. <laughs> no, it's not going to be a holiday. No? Nope. No. Right. Well, at least you'll get to read something. And, uh, wow, what can I say, Mark? Thanks. It's been great. And this is, it's always fun talking to you, whether it's, you know, at a, at a crazy restaurant uh, or uh, on the phone or it in is. Skype or in person. Mark Seaman, ladies and gentlemen, give him a big round of applause. And we'll see you next time on Dotnet Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios. 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm